Tonight, folks, we're going to be looking at the biblical account of Exodus. And perhaps, just perhaps, with our new, two new guests tonight, Scotty Roberts and Dr. John Ward, we may take some of those biblical accounts and put them on their head. We're going to be looking at Moses tonight. We're going to be looking at um, the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to be looking at the Luxor Temple. We're going to be looking at the ten plagues, whether or not those ten plagues that happened during the Exodus actually happened, water into blood, uh, the frogs falling, the lice, flies, uh, sick livestock, uh, storms of fire, locusts, darkness, and of course the death of the firstborn. And I'm having some trouble with Skype tonight, folks, so bear with me. I haven't been able to reach Scotty. Uh, I was speaking to him earlier this afternoon and uh, Scotty Roberts and Dr. John Ward. Dr. John, I can understand, because Dr. John's in Egypt. And uh, But Scotty was speaking to this afternoon, and I'm just wondering if it could be just a mix-up in times. Uh, I had mentioned to him that it was Eastern time, but he's in Central time, so that could be the problem in a nutshell. So we shall see. I'm still trying to reach them. If not, if you have any call-ins, you want to ask any questions, you could call me at Brent Holland Show. That's via Skype, and I'll take your calls right away. If you have something that you would like to talk about, what are your interpretations of biblical accounts? Do you have any? Are there uh, things that you would like to talk about as well? Um, please do call in and let me know, because I can't seem to raise our guests tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so we may go in a different direction here tonight. Um, if I can't reach them in the next two minutes, if this uh, fails, then uh, what I'm going to do is I'll go to a backup plan and um, give my friend in Washington, D.C. a call, uh, who's a JFK expert. And I think that's what we're going to have to do. Let me just... Oh, hi. How are you? Uh is this Bill, Bill from, Angela uh, from uh, South Lake Tahoe? Hi, Bill. How are you? Oh, fine. So uh, anyway, I'm just uh, w w was interested in uh, in the show, but I'm, uh, hopefully you can uh, connect with them. Yeah, I hope so too. I don't know what's happened. Uh, I, oh, was... I think someone just came on, Brent. Scotty, are you there, my friend? I am, sir. Ah, there you are, Scotty. Okay. I had uh, temporarily messed up my time zone. Uh, that's what I was saying. I was thinking that uh, you can tr actually, if you want to turn your camera off, that's okay. We don't need the okay. camera. Just tell everybody to be quiet. Everybody's out here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that'll uh, that'll increase the capacity for Skype as well. Let's start over. Showtime, folks. Ten minutes in, but showtime anyways. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Welcome to the show. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. We've got a great show for you tonight. Scotty Roberts is joining us. I'm trying to reach Dr. John as we speak, Ward from uh, Egypt. We're going to be looking at their interpretations of an age-old biblical story called Exodus. Now, everybody knows the story of Exodus. Um, that's Moses, and he... Uh, he helped folks, he helped Israelis get out of the uh, Egyptian slavery, or so we're led to believe, but perhaps we're going to be standing some of those notions on their head. The book is called The Exodus Reality, and our guest tonight is Scotty Roberts. Scotty, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Scotty, I lost you. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha. 
Oh, Lord EVGs, just give me a second here. Oh, man. Scotty has left the building. I think he's been beamed up or something. This is hilarious. Well, there, I think that that worked a little better now. How's that, Scotty? Uh, much better. My apologies for that. It's okay. Stepped in here and started making noise. My apologies. That's okay. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, what led you to write this book? What was it about the Exodus, the traditional Exodus story that just wasn't your, just wasn't up to snuff in your opinion? And what led you into your your research? Well, the Exodus story was something that, uh, and the story of Moses was something that followed me for a long, long, long time. And uh, um, uh, once I started talking to John Ward about it, I, I looked back and said, wow, this is a story that's been around for me for almost 40 years. And it's, uh, um, I started when I was in probably, uh, what grade would it have been? Seventh grade, around 11 years old. I was in a Sunday school class. Asked to do a paper on Moses, and uh, a very brief one, and I talked to a man named Charles Ailing, and uh, he was one of the seminary students who went to our church, and uh, um, he was the first one that, that kind of let me in on the theory of who he thought Moses may have been, or at least the time he would have lived, and uh, um, that followed me everywhere, all through all through my life, it seemed. Uh, it was uh, high school, I did a... Uh, um, a comic book of uh, uh, Moses illustrations, which is what I was I used to do, mm-hmm. and uh, um, that won me a scholarship to to a uh, uh, the high school I ended up attending, and then uh, um, I also uh, started writing papers when I was in college, papers in seminary on the educational system, the 18th dynasty that. Moses may have encountered, and it just seems to be something that's followed me all the way along. And into my adult life, I I uh, did some uh, illustration work and writing, and again, comic book stuff, uh, stuff for kids' education, and things like that. And it wasn't until I met John that uh, we really decided to put this into uh, a book form. Okay, Doctor John Ward, who's in Egypt right now as we speak, Ashley. Let's go into some questions now because. I very much enjoyed the book. I thought it was terrific. Um, Thank you. You know, here's one guy. He's uh, he's taking people out of bondage from the promised land. Now, this is an important narrative because let me give you an example, folks. How important is this to the Jewish people, to the Hebrew people, to the Israelites? It's as important as the civil rights struggle is to African Americans. It is a seminal event in bringing the Jewish people out of captivity, connecting them in a new covenant with God, and giving them the promised land, quote-unquote. And it's kind of right at the core of everything where we're at today. So with that in mind, um, Scotty, were you a little bit nervous when you started doing your research that you were going to ruffle some feathers? Yes, because uh, I think it's probably because I had a, uh, a less conventional view of Moses, even though I have been a believer that that the Bible is does have efficacious history in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, um, I, I started to drift away from the main tenets 
of the faith that I was in. I was in a very conservative, fundamentalist, uh, evangelical setting, and I started to question some things enough that I started to back away from that a bit. And uh, um, I was also teaming up with someone who was for, and I don't say this as an insult at all, but he was, and John, John will tell you, he's a biblical minimalist, and so he would look at the Bible as saying, yes, there are probably some elements of history there that, that work and that are correct, but we can't use that as the absolute uh, uh, foundation, uh, that there's probably more to it, there's more to the subtext. And, uh, and I really was kind of leaning more in his direction anyway. So we felt that there might be a little bit of uh, controversy raised because we weren't following the very traditional Sunday school, uh, as I would say, rather tongue-in-cheek, uh, the, the bathrobe <laughs> and, and, and beard uh, uh, saga of Moses. Uh, we were saying, is there a historical element to this character that's absolutely true or that's partially true? And when you start looking into that and you start uncovering history, anything in the Bible, whether you have faith in it or not, you you can find elements in history. You're going to find stuff that's different than what you think it should be. And sometimes that will crumble people's view, and they'll either deny that that exists or they will um, – or, or they'll ignore what you have to say. And so are, I'm are there, sorry to interrupt you. Are there so, parallel accounts of Moses or similar stories in other cultures in the same sense that we know that, um, for example, the, uh, uh, the story of Noah, for example? Okay. Is there, are there similar things to that? Um, I think, uh, um, I think that, uh, Moses, there's probably less uh, correlation to other characters in history than you would have for a Noah, uh, because Noah, of course, has the uh, uh, the flood story, which correlates to many other floods. The account itself is one that that you find in other cultures, as opposed to oh, that's the you know that's the Kirk character and that's the Spock character. Uh, you don't have that so much with the story of Moses. Uh, you do have lots of theories as to who he might have been, uh, but they all pretty much coalesce around uh, the, the story, which uh, uh, which uh, doesn't really have another correlation in, in other cultures. So um, the character is what's at question with Moses as opposed to the event itself. Was there something, uh, you know, I know you did a book on the Nephilim. Uh, yes. The book is called The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. Was there something integral with that book that led you to the next con- to the next uh, sequence, if you will, with Moses? Was there something that kind of triggered your curiosity yeah. with Moses? Yes, there was, because uh, uh, that particular book um, I wanted to talk about, and like you're talking about it, was there was there another story of Moses? Uh, um, this is what led me to write the book on the Nephilim, asking that same question in a different way. What are these characters, the Nephilim, mentioned in the Bible, and are there corollaries in other parts of history? And uh, uh, so in writing that book, I chose to study the the account of the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. And, uh, of course, I believe that traditionally Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And so what do you do uh, with this story when you find that there are correlations to it all throughout history, I, I, I'm sorry, ancient culture, mm-hmm. 
and uh, finding out that uh, the Nephilim themselves have, have counterparts in every other culture. The flood itself has counterparts in every other culture. There's over 600 different, don't ask me to name them all, but there, there are over 600 different uh, uh, flood accounts, and linked to them are the accounts of spirit beings that, most of them, spirit beings that intermingle with human women and and create an offspring that some god, deity, or higher power is trying to to uh, exterminate. Uh, and this is in most of your flood accounts, even though the names change, the events change. Um, and uh, so as I was looking at that account through the book of Genesis, I said, why did Moses write this? Where did it come from? What was his purpose? And so I did a little expose on Moses, in the rise and fall of the Nephilim, and I actually entitled that chapter uh, The Pharaoh God of Israel, and there was a reason I did that. And I called it that. It's because I believe Moses was somebody who brought all the things of a pharaoh in training, if you will, or somebody who was, I believe he was a man who was a grand vizier in Egypt prior to the Exodus, prior to his conversion, uh, prior to murdering the Egyptian and fleeing, fleeing Egypt, uh, he was a man who was one step off the throne. He was a vizier, grand vizier, which is uh, Pharaoh in the absence of Pharaoh. And so... Um, uh, well, let's start uh, off at the beginning then. Yeah. Was Moses found in the bulrushes? Is there actually a person called Moses, or is there something that led to that being part of the narrative? Well, let's go back even a step further than that and, right. and say, uh, rather than just start at the bulrushes, let's start with that. Is the story even true? Mm -hmm. um, we don't know for sure that the only way that you can accept that the story of Moses is truth, as you see it displayed in the Bible, is by faith. Because no matter what my candidate is for Moses or John's candidate or anybody else that's out there, no matter what our candidates might be, we still can't prove that the story existed uh, as that the biblical story, the faith story, if you will, is true. And one of the elements of the faith story, of course, is is the the uh, the bulrush, the birth and the bulrushes, and uh, the basket and the bulrushes. And uh, what I mean by all that is, we know that our candidates existed. We know that the story exists. We know that that the Jewish faith and the and the Israelite peoples have always looked to Moses as a legendary hero. But we don't know if the story happened the way we see it. And one of the events I know that you will find in in, if you will, uh, um, uh, those who would do away with uh, the, the minimalists who might do away with the story of Moses, have said, well, for instance, take a look at the floating the basket down the Nile with the infant in the basket. That is obviously a, um, a, a retelling of the Osiris myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so they would, and we could get into what the Osiris myth is, just the, the floating down the basket, the babe, the, the cut parts of the body, things like that. And so they will brush off the story as being a mere retelling of an older legend. Oh, obviously it didn't happen. Well, my, my take on it is this, is, is uh, if the Bible tells us that Moses' mother hid him for a few months until he was too old to hide anymore, and uh, put him in a basket to protect him from being killed by the Edict of Pharaoh. And, of course, there's no record of the Edict of Pharaoh. But she puts him in a basket. I think, I ask the question, could it be the other way around? 
could it be Moses' mother who actually played into the Egyptian myth of Osiris, knowing the myth, growing up in Egypt. It's something that we, we get this, this uh, Sunday schoolized, synagogized, if you will, picture <laughs> of what it was like to be uh, an Israelite under bondage in Egypt. You know, they were this holy people who were totally dedicated to Jehovah God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but I tend to think, and the evidence points it, if you can read between the lines throughout the entire Exodus story, that these were a people that you may have had your pockets of true believers, but I think for the most part, they had become several generations departed from any kind of worship of Jehovah, uh, uh, unless it was just a memory, and that many of those people were, were so Egyptianized, they were not familiar, they were more familiar with Egyptian legend, mythology, religion, spirituality, than they would have been Jehovah worship. And, uh, was there intermarriage what, going on, and what type of numbers was were there? I I don't know. I, I there, there's no way to document anything about intermarriage, other mm. than to say there was probably some of that that took place. I I can't I can't imagine there wasn't. Um, uh, the numbers I know that there there is a mistranslation that's talked about an awful lot when it talks about uh, and during the Exodus that there were two hundred thousand men of foot plus their wives plus their children plus their goats and sheep, plus whatever they owned on their own, plus their elderly, plus any goods they took with them. Even though Moses mandated, uh, just take what you can carry with you, he said, which meant they had a lot more than a, a, than just a slave owning the sandals on his feet and, and the loincloth about his bowels. Um, but uh, um, I think that uh, uh, I had... Uh, well, I know that the, the number is probably exaggerated, and there's probably many factors for that, and that there is a mistranslation that thinks that the uh, 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 the numbering of the people was in the thousands more than, than it was in the millions, and uh, due to this mistranslation of, of numbering of people. Um, I think you also have the fact that the text itself had most probably been, been rewritten, um, and probably more than once. And one place you can go is, uh, and John and I mentioned this pretty heavily in the in the book itself. We talk about uh, the seventy-two rabbis who went to Ptolemy II, one of the Greek uh, uh, Greco-Roman pharaohs of, of Egypt, uh, during the the four hundreds BC, and they asked for permission to go to the Library of Alexandria and there recompile the Hebrew Scriptures. And their purpose was twofold, and, and actually noble purposes, but one was to uh, bolster the faithful of Israel, and two, to rebuild their history. And both of these were hinge-pinned on the fact that they had been in Babylonian captivity, the temple had been destroyed, uh, the land had been sacked, and now they're all getting sent back home. And so these 72 rabbis went in to rebuild and reconstruct their scripture. So they could have their faith stories and they could have their history. Uh, the big question is asked, what was omitted? What was changed? What was, what was mistaken? Uh, one thing we know for sure uh, about, about the rewriting uh, and therefore the possibility of mistakes or misinterpretation was they talked about, and it was actually accurate in their day, but it has led to centuries of misinterpretation. Uh, they say that the Hebrews... Uh, the Israelites had built, while slaves in Egypt, the treasure cities of Python and Ramses, 
or Pyramses. And Pyramses was a city that was built by none other than Ramses II, Ramses the Great. And, uh, um, and he lived, as we all know by the calendar, between the, in the 1250s and reigned for several decades in the mid-1200s B.C. Well, so many people placed the Exodus there. Uh, because, well, the Hebrews, they built those treasure cities for, for Ramses. That's obviously the pharaoh, the pharaoh of the Exodus. Uh, what they're forgetting is that uh, Ramses only rebuilt those cities. He rebuilt uh, Pi-Ramses on top of Avaris, which is located in the, the, the Nile Delta region that's known as, if you date back, it's, it's the land of Goshen, was this strip of very fertile land uh, to the what is now the north and the east of Cairo. And the interesting thing about that, it, it, it's kind of like looking at New York City and saying, who built New York City? <laughs> well, the, the Dutch initially started it. Yes, yes and no. No, the Dutch didn't build New York. The Dutch built New Amsterdam. It was later changed to New York. Uh, so, the, so the Dutch did not build New York. They built a city of a different name. That's the same thing you have going on, in essence, with the rewriting of the Old Testament. Um and uh, the city of Pyramses. That was really the city of Avaris, at least two and a half, two and a half to three hundred years earlier than the time of Ramses. And uh, uh, and by the way, those seventy-two rabbis. There's even some mythology or legend around them. Some people have been questioned that that ever happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to seem they did because they produced uh, the Septuagint and uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament, amongst many other things. How? How difficult was it for you to do your research? Now, I'm thinking that the original Torah, the original Old Testament, if you will, folks, Torah is the Jewish Bible, was written in Hebrew. Did you study it in the original Hebrew, or did you opt to go to several translations? And how different do you think those translations were? Because I I know um, I'm from Montreal originally, and uh, when French gets translated into English and English into French, um, sometimes it's a nightmare. The connotations indeed. get lost. Well, well, indeed, yes. And uh, I will say this: when I was in sem- my seminary days thirty years ago, um, I studied some Hebrew, um, and that is about as far gone from me as uh, 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 being in kindergarten. Uh, I, I studied the basics, so I don't speak Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew. I could recognize a few symbols and so on. So I have to rely on other people's scholarship when it comes to Hebrew interpretation. And uh, uh, so what I did study, though, was, and I've done this for years, I, I studied many of the stories in, in the Talmud, and many of the, st- uh, of the traditions, the, the mikvah, the mishvah, mm-hmm. uh, the mishvah I'm sorry, uh, and also uh, uh, Christian uh, theology, which is really, as far as I'm concerned, Christianity is, is merely a sect of Judaism. Uh, it's something that began as a sect of Judaism. Not, not so much a break away from Judaism, and, well, depending on which Messianic sect you were part of in the first century. Uh, so we stu- what I studied was history. I studied Egyptian history. I studied uh, um, what I knew of, of uh, linguistics, relied heavily on other people for their linguistics. Uh, there's a story, uh, um, a story's not the way to put it, the account of Moses at the burning bush. And there's a very interesting linguistic twist on that story I had never read before, but it was by a very um, uh, prominent scholar, David Roll, who had written about uh, uh, the I am that I am, that phrase, and what it really meant. 
and the connotations of that were mind-blowing to me um, uh, when I found that out. And uh, uh, yet I was able to rely on somebody who, has, who was a credible scholar. Now, David Roll himself, who I, whose work I used, uh, a little back and forth on a couple of things. He, he also created a new chronology of the kings for Egypt, which was pretty much poo-pooed by most of uh, established Egyptology. Um, but his linguistic studies are, are, are premier. So I relied on that, his linguistics for that story and other linguistics along the way. So, Can you share with the audience what those revelations were? Oh, you sure. Discussed? Okay, sure. thanks. Uh, but, but, yeah. I, th- I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Um, no, this I'm Canadian. I'm very polite. What can I tell you? <laughs> um, I thought that this this story kind of blew my mind. And uh, while I cannot recite the linguistics per se to you, there were things that I read, things that I I, I uh, uh, wrote over in the book. Um, but keep in mind, if Moses was a man who was living in Egypt and was in power in Egypt, as my character for him would be, and I'm sure we'll get to that in a while. But uh, um, he is a man who was thoroughly Egyptianized. Um, He was somebody who, um, when he left Egypt around age 40, which I believe he did, he murdered him in Egyptian, Mm -hmm. um, I believe that um, he took with him everything he learned in Egypt. Um, and maybe some remnants of Jehovah worship in there from uh, his his mother who who weaned him. Um, but then he went into this. He went down into Cush, I believe. He went down. And then he went to Midian. He was exposed to the religions in southern Africa uh, or southern Egypt uh, down in the uh, south of south of Egypt. He was exposed to the religions and the teachings and the history of the Sinaitic cultures. He was exposed to the Mesopotamian cultures, the Sumerian culture, and I th- the Canaanite culture. And I think all of this was this great blending stew in the mind of Moses. Um, I don't think he was this great man of faith in Jehovah that, let's say, the faith chapter in Hebrews likes to paint or uh, uh, people like to paint in retrospect about Moses. I think what makes him such an amazing man is what he came from and that he funneled it all down into one belief after his epiphany at the burning bush. And here's where I'm going with this linguistic story. At this burning bush, I don't believe, number one, I don't believe he was a a Jehovah worshiper at all at that point, um, per se. Uh, You remember when uh, God starts speaking to him, he has to ask, who are you, Lord? Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't even know who this was. Um, and maybe that's just because, <laughs> like any of us, he believed what he believed. Uh, but uh, you encounter a bush that's burning and it talks to you, you're going to ask who you are. That's um, pretty good. Uh, that's a that's a good place to start, I would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably a good place to start. But uh, and remember, God identified Himself as I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, Joseph, he enter, he 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 he, uh, uh, he has to really over-identify who he is, uh, unless it's for literary sake when they're writing the story. No, I uh, don't think so. I agree with you there because I studied Torah yes. in Montreal as well, and the idea behind that was, of course, that they they were trying. He God was trying to convince Abraham who he was. Yes, and uh, Abraham, if you if you just segue for a moment into Abraham, remember he was the 
he was a, a priest who was the son of a high priest mm-hmm. in Sumerian culture. So um, this is a guy that was not a Jehovah worshiper mm-hmm. uh, either. But here you've got Moses now. He's at the burning bush. And remember the last question he asks God. He says, whom shall, if the people are going to ask me who sent me, whom shall I say sent me? Now, there, there's kind of a twofold thing. The first thing is, is in, in some of these ancient spiritual or religious cultures, there was power in knowing the name of the deity, the secret name of God. That's right. And uh, uh, you've got that even in, in uh, uh, Judaism. You've got there's, there is the secret name of God. There is the Yahweh question. Uh, and uh, so Moses and kind of I could see him almost tipping his ear toward God a bit and going, um, what's your private name? Whom shall I say sent me? And in essence, God is telling me it's none of your business. And you tell them I am sent you. I am that I am they speak of is all he told them. Mm. And uh, what's interesting is the is the second I am is a word structure linguistically that is an ancient Sumerian wordplay which I found incredibly uh, uh, mind-blowing when you, uh, because as you look at this, it's a progression of, of words that became a wordplay that the writer of Exodus, we don't know if this is exactly what was uttered at the burning bush, but we know this is what the writer said was uttered by God at the burning bush. The writer has written in this wordplay that is much more ancient than the account of Noah, Noah and the burning bush, which would have had to have been somewhere in the in the, the 15th century BC and uh, but you go back to the much older ancient culture in the Sumerian culture which ran everywhere from 4800 BC to 4000 BC somewhere in that range of time so it used to be the oldest civilization we thought existed on the planet civilized culture um, their gods were the Anunnaki and their chief god was Elil or Enlil and the the uh, one of the gods subordinate to to Elil was Enki, also known as Ia, and uh, Ia, uh, the the base word for Yahweh in uh, mm-hmm. Hebrew culture, and Elil, the base word for Elohel, for God, for Elohim, El Shaddai, mm-hmm. El Elyon. Well, when God utters this "I am that I am," there's a word play at play there in the second "I am," which means literally. He's literally saying in linguistics, and I break it down uh, a little better in the book for you, um, and I can tell you where to find more about this to read about it, but he's saying, I am that Enki they speak of. It was a wordplay for the god Enki in the Sumerian culture that was incorporated into the building of the term I am. And so in essence, God is saying, I am that Enki they speak of. And now what we don't know interpretively is he saying, I am literally, I am Enki, or is he saying, that God that they call Enki, it's not him, it's, it's really me. I am that Enki. <laughs> so we don't know what the exact connotation is, but we do know that linguistically, that second I am links to a wordplay for the name of Enki. Can so, we uh, derive from that then that perhaps the Israelites were descendants or evolved from the Sumerians? Oh, I think there's there's not a doubt uh, that that uh, the Sumerians uh, uh, were probably in a way some uh, cultural uh, dis, uh, pre uh, what's the word I'm looking for ancestors to uh, uh, to the Hebrews okay. uh, because I believe culture moved from the Fertile Crescent 
uh, between uh, and folks. We all, it was kind of funny. I asked my wife, we were talking about the Fertile Crescent the other day. Mm-hmm. And she said, she said, what's that? I said, the Fertile Crescent, you know, uh, the cradle of civilization. Uh, so she goes, I never heard that before. I said, did you not go to school? And uh, I said, this is what they taught us in school. Uh, so the cradle of civilization, the Fertile Crescent in the Sumerian uh, where the Sumerian culture was uh, tucked between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers up there in what is now today hotly in the news, the Iraq and, and, yeah. and Iranian uh, areas. And that civilization moved south. And as they spread, they migrated. And when they ended up in the Canaanite region, that those, those peoples uh, had remnants of that language, of course, had remnants of that religion. Uh, and uh, the Hebrews were no different. The Hebrews were really a Bedouin tribe. They were the sons of, of, of a, if you will, a Bedouin landowner. Or uh, uh, landowners probably, in, uh, it probably sounds a bit uh, um, uh, uh, paradoxical to being Bedouin, I suppose, because they're, they're wanderers a bit. But there was a, he was the, the uh, he, owner of herds, a great man in, the, in Bedouin culture, uh, was uh, uh, what Abraham became. He was a wanderer, a Bedou. And, uh, um, Fascinating stuff tonight, folks. We're speaking with Scotty Roberts. If you're just joining us, www.nightfrightshow.com. We're talking about the Exodus reality. It's a new book that Scotty's written with Dr. John Ward, uh, who's in Egypt, actually, right now as we speak. And easy way to get it is always www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover to get right to a spot where you can order the book. Incredible stuff. We're looking at the Bible from a different perspective. We're breaking down some of the myths, some of the lore of the Bible, and seeing what is factual, what isn't factual, and uh, absolutely fascinating stuff. Uh, I'm going to go back to Scotty now. Now, Scotty, how far back can we trace when people started worshiping a single God? Oh, my. Um, I think... Uh, <laughs> You I, had, mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just thought, you know, no, sorry, that, that's actually a particular study I've never done where I said, oh, Eureka, there is the source of monotheism. Uh, I don't think it's, I, I think Moses, the story of the Israelites is probably one of the first hmm. uh, family cultures we know of that, that, that pulled out a singular deity. Um, I think there were other singular deities worshipped in other parts of the world. Um, I couldn't tell you per se what they were off the top of my head. I would have to, uh, I would have to do like, uh, like we did in tests and seminary and say, why can't we reference our books on this one? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, um, I think one of the earliest was, was most certainly, uh, the Hebrew culture and, uh, um, that had a monotheistic culture. But I don't think they were solely monotheistic at heart. I think there are lots of clues even in the scripture. Just to, just look at the golden calf. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> the golden calf is a story that, number one, proves that these people were less Jehovah worshippers than we think they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, or was it just, oh, those bad guys over there. It's over there in, in, in uh, Korah's neighborhood. You know, he, they, they don't worship a singular god, and so they're the ones that made the noise. No, I don't think so. Uh, these were a people, remember when Moses was up in the mountain for 40 days, and the people come and in, in the English translation, it reads so pretty. It says, where is this man Moses? Uh, they ask Aaron, uh, build us a God that we can worship. And uh, they chose, of course, the golden calf, which is none other than Hathor, 
the uh, the calf or cow goddess of Egypt amongst the great uh, 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 litany of deities uh, that existed in Egypt. And they chose her. Why? Because I believe they were at the base of her mountain, which we can get into in a bit. Uh, there was a, a temple at Sarabat al-Khadim, uh, which was uh, uh, dedicated to Hathor. And this is where I believe they were camped when this took place. They were well, to, Hathor. to me, what you just told me validates your thesis that these people had lost contact with the original Jehovah worship and had adopted. They had. I believe they had. Egyptian. And, uh, Beliefs. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't need it. No, it's okay. And had adopted Egyptian beliefs because of that, um, they would default in a time of crisis once their leader's gone automatically back to what they knew and knew yes. very well. And I think, and when I was talking about that pretty phrase, where is this man Moses? Mm -hmm. It says, uh, in the vernacular in the Hebrew, if you look at that, uh, this is one of the things I did study. Uh, in, in this book, uh, looking at some of the Hebrew linguistics, it's more comes out in the vernacular of the Hebrew, like, where's this guy, this Moses, who let us out? I, and I think that it ties into the greater picture of the man Moses, who kept himself very separate. He was, uh, he was not an easy man to get to know, I think. And uh, I, I think that, that he was a man that kind of stood alone out there. And I think part of this came from him believing he was... Uh, 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 believing is probably a stronger trained in this whole pharaonic school of leadership. Um, he was a brother to the gods. He was he was separate from the people. And uh, uh, remember how many times in the in the Exodus stories talk about him, Moses pitched his tent outside the camp. Uh, uh, he wasn't one of them, even though by birth he knew he was one of them. He wasn't one of them. Uh, he kept himself pretty separate. And there's there's something there. Um, uh, that uh, um, that shows us that uh, in the passage. I, I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit. On that's okay. No, I understand what you're saying because perhaps because he was brought up with the Pharaoh, um, right. uh, he was being ostracized by the rest that were supposed to be slaves. And I wanted to get into that. That was one of my next questions. What was life really like for slaves? Because when we go back to uh, King Cyrus, uh, we know that under the Persians, um, slaves, we had the wrong connotation of what a slave was back then and, and what we know from the African-American slave um, disaster that took place. They were kind of different because even slaves had the right to vote. They had the right to keep their own language under right. Cyrus. And right. what was it? Was it similar to what was taking place under under King Cyrus in Persia, what was happening in Egypt for the slaves? Or were they being whipped like we see poor Charlton Heston all the time? You know, I, I think that there was that there were definitely a slave caste in Egypt. You can go to the walls of uh, Grand Vizier Rechmir, and he's holding a rod in his hand, and it says, inscription right there, uh, 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 you know, keep up in your work or I have the rod in my hand and we'll beat you. Mm. And um, I think there was a definite slave class. Um and, and uh, by the way, what distracted me, I just saw that uh, John Ward has raised his head over in Egypt over yes. here. Oh, I'm going to drag him into the conversation. <laughs> yes. Oh. And uh, uh, so he is he is up and around, by the way. Uh, we both had, uh, and he was relying on me. I messed up my time zone. So it's it's about 3.45 a.m. for him over there. Oh, good God. Right good guy. So he's, he's coffeeing up, I'm sure. And uh, uh, so... Um, uh, I don't know if it was like what Cyrus did. Uh, I, I tend to believe that the the uh, 
the Hebrews were, it probably began as much less harsh, less harsh bondage than we would like to think. Um, that it was, uh, it was something that I believe happened on the heels of the expulsion of the Hyksos people. Uh, there's a lot of theorizing that the Hebrews were the Hyksos, and the Hyksos were merely a, uh, a, a, a people group, a real amalgamated people group that had um, assimilated themselves into Egyptian culture in the north, in the Nile, Delta region. They became parts of the towns, parts of the government there, and they eventually took over, is what they did. And that divided the kingdom. They established their own monarchy in, in Memphis, while uh, the Egyptian monarchy was in the south, in Luxor. And they reigned for about 108 years they had their own pharaohs set up on a throne in the divided kingdom up in the north there. I believe this was the time period that Joseph came into Egypt. And there's a lot of telltale things there. And, and it's funny, when we're talking about Moses and the Exodus, there's so much other stuff we have to get into to establish some of the background material that you start having to tell the story of Abraham, tell the story of Jacob, tell the story of Joseph, uh, and all of this. So... Um, uh, Joseph came and settled then, but at, after about 108 years of, of their reign in the north, it was Amos, the pharaoh Amos, who came in and eradicated the Hyksos and drove them out of Egypt, reunited the kingdom. But it was after this time, I believe, that you have the, uh, uh, the, the um, enslavement to the Hebrews. Because even if you look to the biblical scriptures, mm -hmm. Old Testament, it talks about the pharaohs and, and never by names and Joseph and Joseph was raised under this firm and so on. And then it said, and Joseph and his brothers lived and died. And, and uh, over a generation later, a new pharaoh came to the throne who knew not or had no regard for Joseph. And he said, look at these Hebrews. He says, we need to put them under close watch because they were part of this people that were connected to the, the Hyksos. And surely they will rise up. Remember in the biblical passage, they'll rise up, they'll rejoin our enemies and rise up against us again. This is the whole connotation in, in the Hebrew. And so they, in, in a sense, slap them in bondage to say, let's keep them under chain, under guard, put them to work. And uh, I think those are people that had always lived there. They had been there for as a family group, uh, certainly, and expanded for a good 250 years by that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, this is why we say that they were thoroughly Egyptianized. And I think we, we might have we might have my brother Doc John Ward here. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. How are you, my friend? I'm doing quite well, given the time. Yes, all the way from yes. Egypt. Has, has Scotty been boring you with his biblical recales? Oh, not at all. I moved to this chair, actually. I'm absolutely fascinated with this stuff. Just let me tell folks who we're speaking with. Folks, Scotty Roberts, Dr. John Ward from Egypt. Scotty, Scotty, where are you? Wisconsin? Wisconsin? I, I'm in Wisconsin. I'm in western Wisconsin, about an hour outside. How, how unromantic uh, is that? We've got these two guys on your show that wrote this book, uh, and when it all this archaeological study, you've got Dr. John Ward, archaeologist from Great Britain, living in Luxor, Egypt for the last 12 years, and digs in the sand and uncovers <laughs> ancient symbology, and uh, does all this and that, and yada, 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 and you've got Scotty Roberts from Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> 
I don't think it's, I think it's kind of apropos somehow. The, the old with the modern somehow. I don't know. What am I saying? Folks, www.nightfrightshow.com. Get the book, The Exodus Reality. More of this stuff. The other book is called The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. In both cases, click on tonight's guest book covers. That'll take you right to a spot where you can get the books from the comfort of your own home. And tonight is a sweaty night out there, folks. It was pouring rain before. Uh, the humidity has been gathering here in Kingston, Ontario, right where the St. Lawrence meets with uh, Lake Ontario, just about an hour north of uh, Syracuse. And as you can tell where I'm from as soon as I say one single word, about. And that gave it away. <laughs> I, I heard that while you were talking. And, you know, being where I am in basically the the farthest outskirts of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area that you can get, I'm across the river into strange uh, Green Bay Packer territory, but uh, you, you're probably, uh, you're not straight north of us, but Ontario is, is six hours drive north from us. So I was watching the weather on television earlier this evening, and all of our weather the last few weeks is wet, stormy, and now a cold front is coming in, so it's dropping a bit, but you can just see it just moving in on the on the time maps coming from Ontario. So thanks for the weather. Thanks hey, for the no cool humidity. You know, give us six months, we'll send you some snow. Free charge. <laughs> Probably four months this year. <laughs> Maybe. How are things in Egypt, Dr. John? Hot. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scotty, you and I are taking an Very airplane hot. come November, and we're going to go stay yeah. with Dr. John for three or four months. Folks, we're having a great time tonight. We're looking at the history of the story of the Exodus, and everybody knows the story of the Exodus when Moses gathered up the Israelites, threatened the Pharaoh with ten plagues. That's where we're going to go next. Um, and uh, got the Pharaoh to release the Israelites. But is that story accurate? Is it true? Is it historically accurate? And that's what we're looking at tonight with some new research by our two guests, Scotty Roberts and Dr. John Ward. Now, guys, I just mentioned the ten plagues. Can I dive into a couple, and you can tell me what your interpretations were of them? Take it away, John. No, no, no I, I, you, you go for it, Brendan, and then we can really we can pull Scotty apart on his, okay. lab, on his very lame theory. Water into blood. This almost sounds, I preferred the, the, wine, the water into wine, because I'm more of a wine guy, but water into blood in this particular case. Scotty? Yeah. <laughs> you know, can, the, the, I'll just say this, and John, you take from this. Because, uh, I would. There, there is uh, uh, some papyrus, that uh, the pure papyrus that was used in some of our research as part of what we've researched. John has, has, has an incredible theory. And, you know, it's as wrong as he is. He's got this great theory. <laughs> and you guys are co-authors. It's a good, it's a good thing you're thousands of miles apart. Yeah, I, love, I love it. I will have to tell you this. I do have to tell you this. We were doing a book signing once when he was here in the States. And uh, um, he wrote to this person in the book. He says, he, he said, uh, thank you for buying the book, yada, yada. And then he says, and Scotty's theory on Senan, which my candidate for Moses, he says it's an amazing theory, and it all begins on page 287. And if you flip over to 287, it's there's only 286 pages in the book. Oh. And so he wrote 287 on the bottom of the blank page and uh, Ouch. Uh, put Scotty's theory. So uh, John and I, we have, we have a, a very uh, uh, friendly uh, uh, tit-for-tat uh, 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 back and forth, but uh, I respect John's theories. I respect the, the time and the effort and the years of research he's put into it. 
Um, and you both respect each other's right to be wrong. Is that the idea? I respect his right to be wrong. Uh, uh, but he's wrong with style. I got to tell you that. So this is why I hail the John. I, the, the whole water to blood. Of course, there's the faith story that says it was a miracle. And this is this this is really what John and I dealt with throughout the whole book and talk about faith versus uh, scholarship or academia or science or whatever it might be, and saying you can look at the faith story and you can accept that if you believe that by faith. If that is what your faith tells you, if a miracle really happened, you can't prove or disprove a miracle. You can't prove or disprove the hand of God. But the questions you have to ask is, are there natural explanations? And I think there are. We all know about the the, the, uh, the, the tinting of the of the water and things. Like that. I, I think if the Exodus took place as we read it, and it was all natural occurrence, that uh, the guy Moses sure had his hand on meteorology and timing. And we got to do this. We got to do this today because today is the day the water turns red, um, or, or you know whatever it might be. But but John. Go ahead, John. Tell us about the frogs, I'm, just, I'm just listening intently there, really. Oh, John, um, <laughs> with your amazing theories. <laughs> Thank you, John, bro. tell us about the frogs falling from the sky. Well, the, 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 the frogs didn't really fall from the sky. Um, and, you know, when the, when the water turned red as blood, uh, the locusts, the, the, the boils one has to start to look at a bigger picture um, because when we look at the plagues, we, we, we kind of take them on the individual basis. But if we take them as a series of consequence, one can start to relate that to with context to actually to our own modern era um, because when we when we look at disaster areas uh, such as the the great tidal waves that we've seen that hit Japan and so forth um, we start to see the the effects of such catastrophes as being places where there are pools of blood because of unfortunate death has has uh, succumbed the victims. Uh, we've seen the disbursement of natural wildlife, frogs, locusts, flies, blowflies, spreading disease, uh, contaminating water supplies, uh, eradicating food supplies, crops are completely destroyed, of course. Um, and we start to see all these scenarios play out, even in our own time. Now, if we were to put that into context and place that within the the dynastic setting, we're talking about an era where there wasn't there was no help. FEMA wasn't going to come along and help the disaster. They weren't going to look after the survivors. The hospital beds were not going to be overcrowded because there wasn't any hospital beds. That was the role of the priests within the temples. So we would see the temples being overcrowded, of course, with survivors. Um, but you wouldn't see the Red Cross delivering packages of, of food and essentials. Um, all of that would have taken place had there been a natural catastrophe at the beginning of the plagues. And I think this is something that we need to look at, and this is what I propose within, within the theory of uh, Amenhotep, son of Hapu, who is my candidate as the characterization for Moses. And what I looked at was the, the actual locality, and that's ancient Thebes, today modern Luxor, 
I'm going to have to cut you off there just for a second. We take no a problem. quick four-minute break and um, give you time to get a cup of coffee, John, and uh, also myself and also you too, Scotty. Brent Holland from Night Fright, folks. Scotty Roberts, Dr. John Ward are with us tonight. We're looking at a book called The Exodus Reality, and we're looking at the fact that perhaps Moses and the narrative that we've been told since we've been we in the in Sunday school may not be accurate. We'll be back in four minutes. Stick with us, guys. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. Welcome back to Night Fright. Get the coffee going. Get a tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Settle in. We have a full hour left with two incredible guests tonight. And they are Scotty Roberts and Dr. John Ward. We're looking at a new book they have out called The Exodus Reality. And 3,300 years ago, folks, 3,300 years the Exodus took place. And that's where Moses led the Israelites out of bondage, or maybe not. New research by these two folks. Maybe Moses was more of a composite character. And that's what I want to put to Dr. John. Dr. John's in uh, Egypt, by the way, folks. It's 4 o'clock a.m., 4.03, to be precise, right now. And he's being a super trooper, charged up on Egyptian coffee, bouncing off the walls in Luxor, Egypt. Dr. John, was Moses created as a composite character, and was it necessary to adopt this character to unite the Israelites? I imagine that all these Israelites were fragmented. Uh, I'm trying to get a picture of them in, in Egypt, and a good way to unite people is around a common cause, a common focus. Is that why they created this Moses character? That's a very, very interesting question. Um, very, very difficult also to answer, I suppose, from my, from my perspective. More easy for Scotty, because I mean, as Scotty loves to regale to most people, I'm, I'm what you call a, bi- a, a biblical mimulist. And so. <laughs> Plus he's from Wisconsin, so. Plus he's from Wisconsin. Um, You see, from my perspective, um, actually living here, working here on the ground, and I I don't know um, how much of your audience knows about my good self and and what Scotty has said in my absence while I was away for that brief moment. Um, He said you had to be the United States because they were after you. Is that not true? (laughs) I'm kidding, folks. I'm kidding. Go ahead, Dr. John. Tell us about yourself, please. That's a joke, folks. I got it. I got it. I got it. Um, um, I could say something else there. Um, I I work at the the ancient quarries of Gebel el-Sassila, which are the the largest sandstone quarries of of ancient Egypt, which still uh, are well-preserved to this day. Now, within those quarries, I, I, I use this as, as an example to answer your question, really. So it's a little bit long, long-winded, but I'll, I will get there. Um, but in, in these quarries, you have over there's thousands of inscriptions dating from all the way right back to uh, uh, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 years, all the way up until present day. So it, it's, a, it's a wonderful window into mankind's history. What we're missing there, and what we're missing at other sites across the ancient landscape of Egypt, are inscriptions uh, that pertain to a particular ethnic group. And what we mean by that is what you're referring to, and that is the Israelites. It's missing. It's not here. 
it's 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 missing from the archaeological record. Now, that having been said, for me, they, there wasn't an Israelite tribe. There, there were the the shepherds, shall we say, the the nomadic tribes that came from the east. And I'm, I already, I, I came into the show where Scotty was already talking about that, the house of Jacob and so forth. Um, for me, then the 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 catalyst for the Exodus uh, was, of course, the breaking of the lake of Malkutta in in Thebes, uh, which led to the huge. Excuse the pun. The, the biblical uh, proportions of, of an apocalyptic event, uh, given the circumstances of Thebes at that time, and and that led to the Exodus. Um, the characters who played out at that particular point um, are, of course, the viziers, the high officials, and so forth. And for me, that that was again. I go back, and that's Amenhotep, son of Hapu, the great vizier, the the hereditary crown prince, uh, the right hand of the living personification of God, Amun Ra himself, Pharaoh. And it was this gentleman who who led uh, the, the survivors of that apocalyptic event out of what was left of Thebes, led them eastwards, and eventually arriving in the Sinai, and, and <laughs> the rest is history, as we say. Uh, so uh, it's then we, we have to jump forward then. We have to jump forward, because we then look to the point during Ptolemy II, the, the time of the great Arsenae in, in Alexandria at the Museum, the, the Alexandria Museum, um, Library, where the Septuaginta was starting to be collated from the Greek passages and was being retranslated. And that, it was at that point, I think, would, comes into what you were saying and how you worded your, your question. And that was the catalyst that brought together the Israelites. It was the rewriting of their history, a collation of, of snippets that were left around, gathered by the 72 Hebraic scholars who, who sat, as it was said, sat in their, uh, their separate cubicles receiving the word of God uh, as they wrote the Septuaginta. And so for me, that, that at that point is where they took advantage, of course, uh, of their location, and that was the museum, the great Alexandria Library, which would have been full to the brim of knowledge. And it, it, it's not too far to say that they would have taken advantage of such a library uh, to gather their thoughts, gather their ideas, um, look into the history of their people as as uh, as noted by the ancient Egyptians themselves, and so here the characterization of Moses comes together from various sources throughout ancient Egyptian history, and that for me that's that's the characterization. That's how he came about. Um, so it's it's not saying that there wasn't a Moses. It's what it's saying is that there was a combination of events that led to specific character, uh, characters of the time rising to that, that moment, um, and they are the, the basis for the characterization of the hero of the time, the man himself, Moses. 
if that answers it in a kind of it, it does way. I, I kind of it does it really does Scotty how do you feel about that same way well uh, the same way in many factors that John does in that um, uh, my, my only difference being that I will hinge pin the story on the biblical account and say there is efficacy to the biblical account, even though there were change, obvious changes, even though there were cultural changes to the story, many edits of the story. I think the story has its basis in truth, and I think that the character was was less a, a, an archetype, like John builds an Amenhotep son of Hapu, mm. uh, and the events of uh, the destruction of Lake Malkata, even though those are very, very tempting theories. And, and I will say... Uh, as much Tempting. as we, as much as we rib each other uh, about our theories, I, I have a lot of respect for John. There was a, a point in the writing where I thought, "Hmm, I wonder if John's a little more onto something than I am." But nah, that that was fleeting, and I and I dispensed with that thought right away. Uh, but uh, John and I really divide our our two Moses characters by about two generations in the 18th dynasty in that royal house. And uh, so you're talking maybe a, a distance of 80 years between our characters. Uh, we come together on many other points. Um, uh, my character is, uh, John mentioned uh, Amenhotep, son of Hapu, the grand vizier, the high priest, and so on. Um, mine was a man named Senenmut, who was uh, the grand vizier uh, to the pharaoh Hatshepsut, uh, the female pharaoh. Um, in the uh, Tutmosian line of pharaohs, Tutmosis the first, Tutmosis the second, the third, and so on, and uh, um, we know very little about uh, uh, about Senenmut, the man, other than in Egyptian history. Other than that, uh, he is said to have been born of commoners. And uh, when you are uh, when you are a pharaonic scribe or a household scribe or an Egyptian scribe serving the pharaohs. Uh, do you want to say that somebody in great power rose out from your slave class? There, there may have been just by calling them commoners a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a, a putting lipstick on a pig. There, I don't know, but uh, Senate but, uh, uh, was a man who who was raised as a he was a commoner, and he was brought into the household of Hatshepsut the queen as a steward for her house. Now, a steward in 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 those terms in ancient Egypt wasn't like just just a, a, the butler who was in charge of the house. Uh, he was also the tutor to the royal daughter of Hatshepsut and her brother, uh, who she was married off to, uh, Tutmosis II. And uh, their daughter was Nefruri. And there are many statues of sentiment that he left behind, nine different statues with him holding her in loving embrace. But Senenmut, uh, in the position of, of household steward and tutor to the royal daughter, uh, you got to get the picture of school marm out of your head, a butler out of your head. These were usually people put into these positions, who were of the the who were, who were nobles in Egypt, uh, or they had great military accomplishment. Uh, these were the kinds of people that were put into these positions, and this is where where Senenmut was put in, and uh, he was eventually when Tutmosis II died, leaving his son of a lesser wife, a harem wife, if you will. Um, Tutmosis III as the heir to the throne. He was only about three years old at the time. And so Hatshepsut, uh, the royal wife, the sister to the pharaoh, um, right from the line of Tutmosis I, she was uh, put in as, uh, as, of course, co-regent for about six years, and then she took over. Uh, she just simply took over the pharaonic role. 
wore the men's clothing and so on and established herself as the pharaoh of of of, of uh, Egypt, and she reigned for over twenty years. And uh, but during this time, she raises Senenmut to power. Uh, she she gives him over ninety two different royal titles. Um, she gives him, uh, as I mentioned, the title of uh, uh, Grand Royal Architect, and he's said to have been responsible for her great temple at uh, Deir el Bahri um, and many other structures. Uh, Scotty, is, there, is there any evidence of him leaving Egypt with a mass of people? No, no here, here's, here's the crux of what I'm getting to. With okay. all these royal titles in this position, he simply disappears off the Egyptian scene, um, and he disappears right around, roughly around the same date that the biblical chronology places Moses. This is where it all becomes speculative, right. and you've got to speculate a bit to make this, uh, because the stories look like they look like they, they work. But uh, around the same time, he leaves behind two glorious tombs, both of them unfinished, uh, both of them never used, as far as there's any evidence of, uh, one of them containing one of the most uh, phenomenal astronomical calendars on the ceiling that still is accurate by today's standards. And uh, um, these, these beautiful tombs never used, no mention of whatever happened to him, uh, just simply disappears. Here is the guy who is a grand vizier to the pharaoh, um, the royal architect to the pharaoh, and all these other titles, and he simply vanishes with no word. Either we've lost those records, or those, or those records are, are just were, never existed. He just disappears, and very shortly after, Hatshepsut dies, and her deposed, if you will, co-regent Amenhotep III comes to the throne, starts eradicating her images from the temples, holds off. He's establishing that now I am the rightful pharaoh, indeed. And it's forty years later, when he's in his dotage. And he has his young son, young by our standards, about 18 years old, Amenhotep II, becomes the pharaoh and the co-regent for a couple of years. Um, I believe, uh, uh, well, history is telling us now that all this eradication of imagery of Hatshepsut took place under the sun, not under Amenhotep III. He started it. Amenhotep took over, finished the job, totally eradicating every image of Hatshepsut uh, everywhere that could be found. Uh, with few remnants, right off of her own temple, chiseling her image off. But at the same time now, 40 years after her death, 40 years after the disappearance of Senenmut, he also goes in and eradicates every image of Senenmut. And uh, I believe... Like somebody's pissed off. Somebody's pissed at somebody. Yeah. Um, I, I believe, and I say this in the book, I speculate this based on secondhand historical information where you're trying to correlate facts that are not spelled out for you that it looks like Senemet, at least according to the chronology that's set forth in the biblical account, it matches the chronology of Senemet, of Hatshepsut, of Tutmosis, of uh, Amenhotep. Amenhotep. But uh, could this man be the man, and when he disappears at age 40 with no trace, why is there no mention of it? Why is there nothing said about him dying or being removed from power? There's nothing there. His tombs were never used, but 40 years later... His images are are eradicated from everything. Uh, at the same time, they're eradicating his. And and by the way, there was even his name. And I forgot to tell you this: his name, Senenmut, means mother's brother. This is a name that was bestowed on him by Hatshepsut when she raised him to power. 
Uh, we don't even know what his real name was. But she gives him a name in his early adulthood somewhere where she calls him mother's brother, meaning, and there's kind of a dual implication here uh, uh, with the connotation here, mother's brother, I, your mother, am elevating you to the status of brother to the gods with me, or I, the mother of Egypt, am elevating you to the status of brother to the gods with me. No matter which it may be, when we talked way back about the basket story and so on, mm -hmm. um, the young who found him in the Nile, uh, it said she found him, and it, it calls her in the Bible, all it calls her is, is Pharaoh's daughter, which in Egyptian history was actually a title. Uh, Hatshepsut was known as, her title was Pharaoh's daughter uh, when she was a young child. And she, uh, if, if, the, if the biblical account is true, and the, the dates line up, uh, Moses would have been born around the first year of the reign of her father, Moses the first. She would have been about seven years old or thereabouts. And when she found Moses in the biblical account, says she sends him back to his mother until she's old enough to take him. Then she reclaims him, reestablishes him. If this is indeed the same woman as Hatshepsut, there's a remarkable woman that raised him, but at the same time, as you know how these relationships go in the Egyptian royalty, is also uh, very much a, a, a known historical fact or a known historical speculation based on many elements that uh, Hatshepsut and Senenmut were lovers for a long, long, long time. Wow. And there's even, if you will, uh, um, erotic graffiti that was painted in the workers' cave up in the, up in the and John and I were in there last year, uh, where you can see this graffiti. It's 3,500 years old uh, uh, from the, the workers on her temple. 3,500 years ago, and it's it's pornographic, if you will, erotic graffiti showing Senenmut uh, uh, with Hatshepsut bent over on a block in front of him in their thing. And uh, so it was a known fact even then that they were that close, so to speak. It's and funny, so, you know, when you mention that, to, to think that sexuality and procreation um, are kind of at the core of, of humanity all the way through. Yes, Completely so. It's like a, a, an intertwining thread and uh, the desire to procreate and uh, have sex, if you will. Um, well, I liken, I liken sentiment to, uh, as I've said to John, and we've discussed these things inside and out for years now, but mm -hmm. um, I, I look at the, the court of Hatshepsut and I say, compare it. It's not modern, but it's something we can wrap our heads around a little better. Is Look at the court of Elizabeth I of England and uh, all of her relationships with Robert Dudley, with Essex, with all the, all the different intrigues that were going on in the, in, in the royal court, in the courtiers, uh, people that were known to be and suspected to be seditionists, that it wasn't until it actually came out that uh, they were beheaded, you know, guys like Norfolk and people like that, uh, Essex eventually. Uh, I think this is the kind of scenario you have in Hatshepsut's court. And this is why you have her stepson, uh, who had been deposed. Uh, he, he is general of all her armies, and he makes no move to take the throne forcibly. He waits till she dies. Uh, and, uh, but I believe that when Moses, or Senenmut, mm -hmm. uh, ended up murdering the Egyptian, as the biblical tale says, and flees Egypt... I believe that that was Senenmut probably took out as the Grand Royal Architect, 
took out a taskmaster who was probably a little more elevated than just a taskmaster, mm. uh, and uh, and he may have been of the faction of Tutmosis III. That's pure speculation, speculation. on my part, but well, it but makes sense. I story thinking, would have fled. I'm thinking, Doctor John and Scotty, it must be very difficult to trace back lineage. Um, I mean, it's hard enough for people today, even online, when they do um, their searches for, to find out where they came from to try and place people together because people's names change and sometimes names and dates get written down incorrectly. And this is all online. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the uh, the challenges that both of you have faced trying to trace lineage back and trying to make guesstimates um, of historical consequences in, in each case. Now, Dr. John, I want to come back to the Ten Plagues for a second because one of the things yes. that has always bothered me, um, because I think it's barbaric, was the death of the firstborn, and this is where the name in English Passover came from, mm-hmm. where the Israelites painted some blood, if you will, placed some blood on their doorstops from a sheep, and that was in order for the angels to pass over, if you will, and go to the next door. And whatever the firstborn baby was, if it didn't have that blood on the doorpost, they were killed. Is there any evidence of this story ever taking place in the Egyptian narrative as opposed to the uh, the Torah? Well, again, I, I refer to, from from my perspective, I, I refer to the, the events that led were directly revolving around the time of Amenhotep, son of Hapu. Now, one has to remember, of course, when you refer to the firstborn, one always conjures an image in one's, one's mind of, of a baby. But, but not of course, of course. But not necessarily. Yes. If you are an only child, yeah. you, could be, you could be in your 40s, you could be in your 50s. Your parents could actually be dead, and you could be in your 80s, but you are still the firstborn. Precisely. of that particular lineage. Um, so what we're looking at is actually a whole swathes of generations that would have been taken out at that particular time. And again... And John, ref- John. Yes, sir. Could I just add something from the biblical passage itself actually says, it talks about the firstborn story, but it says there was not a household in Egypt that was not affected by this. And I think that's exactly. the key phrase. That's validation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is. I mean, so we, we, we've got to look, and it's like you just said as well, Brent, you know, we, we've got to look at the scenario, we've got to look at the context, we've got to look at the history, but we've, more importantly, we've got to look at the, the actual ground itself. Um, so many scholars uh, and laymen alike that we've come across over the years, and I'm sure you have too, Brent, that have written various novels and books and so forth, and researched and researched and researched, but how many have actually been on the ground? How many have actually touched the sands of Egypt? How many have actually walked the paths that Moses mm-hmm. uh, would have walked? How many have actually walked amongst the pillars of the temples where he would have grown up, grown up as a child? Um, one has to get into character, so to speak, uh, when, when trying to investigate such, such, a, such material. And, you know, I heard Scotty earlier when I first came back on that, that, that there is the faith element there. Well, I don't want to diversify from the question, um, but it, 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 you have to take it into all its context. 
And at the same time, you have to remember you are dealing with biblical record. We're dealing with sacred texts. And if we were to remove the sacredness of it and remove the connotations of religion, the indoctrination of religion, and remove all of that from the, the, the actual text itself, what are we left with? We're left with snippets, little windows into history. Um, and I, I agree with Scotty. There, there is efficacy there within the, within the text, but I believe it's been manipulated over various <laughs> at various points in history to bolster the faithful, to bolster the the Judaic faith, and or the Judaic religion. Sorry, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, that's where we then get different interpretations. And uh, there again, great word interpretations. It is, everything is at, at the whim of an interpretation. Um, we use words so loosely these days that it, sometimes we, we become embroiled in, in, in the misinterpretation of what has actually taken place. Um, you're asking about the firstborn, the babies, the Passover. You see, you're using words and, and religious ceremonial practice now that is the mainstay. But if we put it into context and go back to ancient Egypt, Passover didn't exist. There was no such thing as That's Passover. Right. Um, firstborn, again, we've already covered that. That could have been anywhere from a baby to an 80-year-old man, woman, or child. Um, and so what we've got to look for are various pointers, markers that stand out within the historical record where we have mass death in one particular area or one particular night, one particular day. Yeah, that's um, what I was getting at. Is there something like that that jumps out? No, of course there isn't. There's, there's nothing in history. <laughs> we, we, unfortunately, we don't, we don't have that precision unfortunately, at looking. And because we don't have that precision, that doesn't mean that we're wrong, but it doesn't mean that we're right. It's just that we don't have it. Um, so we've, we've got to look further afield. We have to look within the record itself and see if there's anything there that could be used as, to use Scottish terminology, as a second-hand reference that we can then build upon. Um, but also, at the same time, Bearing in mind and being honest, being truthful, mm -hmm. and saying this is second hand. We, we this isn't precise. This is just merely an interpretation of events that have been recorded within history, and we are looking at these as as possible markers, because what we've always said, and one is one of the phrases which we love, and, and that is. As long as archaeologists such as myself and Scotty are putting trowels in the ground, history will forever be changing because we never know what we're going to hit next. And so one has to be open to the Precisely. idea Precisely. that something may be found, something may be discovered later on that will completely throw Scotty's theory, because my theory is 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 perfect. Oh, but it will, it, of course. <laughs> but it, it it will. There, there, I'm sure I will find something myself at Sosilla, which will completely throw Scotty's theory out of the window. Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> wait, 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 he's not telling you here. You don't know how many times John has called me 
and said something like, Scotty, he says, you wouldn't believe what we just found on Sunnenmut today. And he says, this would be very interesting for your theories here all over this and that. But, you, you know, um, uh, 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 I, I tell John he thinks that this protests too much. Uh, I, I, <laughs> it's fully engaged in my, my theory of Sunnenmut. And, and, it's uh, entertaining. It's entertaining. <laughs> I, I, I love your I love your little theory. It, it's, it's 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 like a little romantic tale, a Shakespearean tale. It's witty. It's humorous. Oh wait a minute! It's entertaining. Shakespeare, did he? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, folks, for more of this banter, you got to get the book, The Exodus Reality, at www.nightfreightshow.com. Scotty Roberts is our guest tonight. He's co-author with Dr. John Ward, who's in Luxor, Egypt, uh, where it's very warm apparently. Scotty Roberts, of course, is when is in Wisconsin, and I always have problems with that name, and I am in Kingston, Ontario. There we have it, the triumvirate. Now, again, I'm going to go back to this idea of of Passover, of Pesach, of Moses bringing and uniting the Jewish people together. And one of the most celebrated high holidays of the Jewish people, of course, is Pesach. Pesach is another word, folks, for Passover, but it has a different connotation. It actually means to hover, to protect. That's an interpretation of that word. Now, the oral tradition has it that every year during a Seder, which is a celebration meal, if you will, folks, a remembrance meal of the Passover, and by the way, uh, Christ's Last Supper was was one of these meals, um, the various generations of Jews tell the younger generations about the Passover, and that allows them to grow roots uh, into this religion, uh, into being a Jew, and it also allows them to carry on the traditions, if you will, generation after generation after generation. Do you think that's part of it as well? Do you think all of that works into it? Oh, definitely. Most um, I, Scott, I, go sorry, go on, Scotty. I'm sorry, no, no, mate. No, no, no. I, I was just agreeing. I was just saying yeah. yes. I, I have relatives uh, um, who are Jewish. Um, my my mother's uh, stepfather was a Jewish man, and uh, so we were the uh, my little family. We were the the five goy in an ocean of Judaism. <laughs> yeah, that was like me at Passover too. <laughs> one, I was a token goy. <laughs> I was asking one of my cousins uh, when we were adults. This was about ten years ago, and we were out to coffee. And I asked him. I, I said, uh, "What does Judaism mean to you?" Mm-hmm. Uh, he was mogul in advertising in the Twin Cities, and uh, uh, he said, "Well, he says I don't know that I really believe all of it." He says, "It's but it is a foundation for my family," and I, so I think what you're onto there is is. A lot of the beliefs that we have, whether it be Judaism or Christianity uh, uh, or even uh, Islam, these are many of these you'll find that there aren't a lot of quote unquote true believers. They are they they are there because this is what their family has done. It's the cornerstone, the hinge pin, so to speak, to their family foundation stone. And uh, uh, this is what we are. Uh, this is what ties our family together. And I think these traditions. You can go out. You you can go out to the outer boundaries of that, and say a lot of these traditions are adhered to without really looking into what was really the meat of the story, what was the subtext of the story, Precisely. who were the people beneath. And and I've got to say, I've got to agree with what John said when he was talking about every time you put a shovel or a trawl in the ground, you could upturn a new theory. 
I think both John and I, as, as much fun as we have with our theories and as convinced as we are that our theories are accurate and true, um, which they are, which they are, of course, uh, both of them. Um, uh, I think we are both honest enough to say if we unturned something that proved our theories wrong, we would say, wait a minute, I got to rethink my theory because uh, the evidence dictates differently. Um, and, and so, uh, um, you know, maybe maybe one day we'll go with uh, David Roll's chronology of the kings and we'll tell <laughs> research and effort into his theory and he is right about so many things um, that uh, it, it's it's something he's invested in and he believes that this is where this story originates and uh, and I respect his theories I respect his research Dr. And, John where does the Ark of the Covenant play into this <laughs> um, the, the Ark of the Covenant the, is at the end of the day, what we refer to as a bark shrine. Um, now, if we put ourselves squarely into the feet of the early Israelites, and let's, let's take the idea or the notion, let's go with the biblical packet, pa uh, passages, and let's say they left en masse, Exodus. Um, who were they? Now, let's, let's not use both Scotty and myself uh, and our theories. Let's just put those to the side for a second. Let's put the book to the side for a second. Um, who were the Israelites? Who were they? They, they, they were Egyptian. Uh, they'd been living in Egypt for nigh on 400 years. Uh, they had retained possibly... Yeah. So they retained some cultural identity. Uh, they had a, a, a series of beliefs and so forth. But, but they had been living in Egypt. They had been surrounded by the Egyptian culture. They had been surrounded by the Egyptian religion, which we have to remember and, at the end of the day, really take this on board, that the Egyptian religion was everything. It wasn't just the bells ringing on Sunday to call people to prayer. It was everything. You lived it. You breathed it. You ate it. You drank it. It was your life. Everything was based upon the Egyptian religion. Herodotus, the great Greek historian, mm -hmm. um, wrote a wonderful passage where he said that the Egyptians are wonderful people, but they lived their lives preparing for death. Because they ultimately knew that life itself was merely but a, a second. But eternity is death. Mm. And so they knew this. And so they spent their entire lives preparing for death based upon their religion. Where I'm going with this? If we look into, the, go to any of the temples today that, that are still preserved, and you look upon the walls, you'll see what a box for want of a better word, very ornate, usually um, with surrounded or set within a tabernacle, a curtained uh, structure, a tent, for want of a better word, but the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. 
this box sits on top of another box, a stand. Um, through the ringlets of this box, two poles emerge. By the sides of this box that sits on a box, i.e. the stand within the tabernacle, there are tables. On the tables are different utensils and plates, jugs, bowls, cups, incense burners, lampstands. What am I referring to? I'm referring to, I'm mentioning all the, the, the parameters of the ark itself. As, as written within the Old Testament. Now, as I say, you can go to any of the temples here and you can see exactly what I've just described to you. But we refer to them as the bark shrine, the box that contained the, the actual statuette of the God himself or herself that resided within that temple. And this, the, the God, the, the, the statuette would have been placed within the bark of the shrine, and then the priests would have carried the bark shrine upon their shoulders on the poles from temple to temple. And it was the way in which the gods were able to visit each other from temple to temple and so forth. And so what we have then is a pure and simple Ark of the Covenant. Because when we read the Old Testament, we go through it bit by bit. We talk about the tabernacle, we talk about the utensils, we talk about the bowls, we talk about the jugs, we talk about the lampstands, we talk about the incense burners, we talk about the, the, the poles. Very precise details of how to build the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and, and yet what materials we look at, to use as well. Exactly. And when we look around within the ancient record, when we look at the archaeology of it all, we have the bark shrines everywhere throughout Egypt as depicted upon reliefs. Um, and for me, that's what the Ark of the Covenant is. It is merely a vessel, a vessel for carrying the personification of God. Um, and that's what the Ark of the Covenant really actually was at the same time. It was to carry the word of God. The, the testament um and so that and each member of the, the, the 12 tribes had a had a, a a point to play yes during the ceremony and also um in, in the carrying of the box as well as an interpretation yes because I mean, we, when we look at the priests of ancient Egypt, we always we can see them. We know that they're that if we refer to them as the priest class, uh, the, the 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 shaven ones. Um, you know, they were so pious, they were so above everything. I mean, they were literally living their lives in complete piety. And one can really you you can start to see the similarities there uh, within biblical reference. And so, for me to answer your question, there, Brent, the Ark of the Covenant, yes, it existed, but it existed in the form of context, and that was a bark shrine. That's what they knew. That's what they built. That's what they had been surrounded by. Scotty, where is the Ark today? Besides at Area Fifty One. <laughs> And I'm referencing Temple of Ra, not Temple of Ra. You, you mean other than Area 51? Yeah. Wow. I was say, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, the, certainly the Masons and the Templars say they know where it is. Um, We're going to get to that soon. I'm going to ask you about your involvement with the Templars, Dr. John, in a second. Yes. Where do you uh, think it is? I, I think it may have been destroyed um, in antiquity, uh, but we don't know this. Sure, there are those that say it, it, it is still around. Um, um, so 
I don't know where it is. I, there's all kinds of theories is about to where it is. There are there was a Zionist movement back when I was in college that said that it's, it's in a, a hidden chamber beneath the Dome of the Rock in the caves beneath the Temple Mount. Yeah, uh, I, I've heard all of these the theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, it could be in a big box in a crate <laughs> in a big <laughs> warehouse in, in the desert or by by uh, uh, Area 51. Um, <clears throat> we don't know exactly where it is, but uh, <clears throat> I... Speaking about what John was talking about with the the bark shrine, by yeah. the way, if you anywhere you go over there, you look on the walls, you find John. The first time I was there, and John pointed me. I believe John, it was in the tomb of Ramos, uh, where you pointed out. You said, "What does that look like to you, there, Scotty?" You said, and uh, there was a picture of the Ark of the Covenant up on the the, the tomb wall of of Grand Vizier Ramos. Wow. And uh, yet it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant. It was a bark shrine. And uh, um, you've got a, uh, is it the wall, John, at, at, is it at Luxor Karnak, the, the wall that shows all the marching of the soldiers as walls about 100 feet long in this inscription, and you've got all the priests carrying I think, you, I think you're referring to the one at, um, um, <laughs> the, um, by the, by the hall. Are you referring to one at Medina Habu, or are you referring to the one at Karnak? The, I think see, it's that, that, that's it, you see, Brent. They, they are, as, as Scott is saying, they, they're, they're, they're depicted throughout the temples because it's, it's integral. It is integral to the religion. Interesting. The Bark Shrine is, is, is the vessel for, for transportation of the divine. Now, Go ahead. just listen to those words. Yes. This is the transportation for... The divine. Uh, that for me says it all, and that's prior to any of the Judaic or the, or the Christian religions, and that's what it was. It was merely a vessel for transporting the divine, um, and for me that that is the personification of the Ark of the Covenant. And you know this this to me very strongly once again reaffirms the point that John and I make over and over again is that when Moses, <clears throat> no matter who he was, right. um, when he built Judaism, he built a religion based on many other religions uh, out of whole cloth to create uh, um, a religion that was to govern his people, a new nation. And I think this story of the Ark of the Covenant is indicative of everything else that happened. It's the borrowing from the other cultures. It's the, the not only did Moses, when he wrote Genesis uh, borrows stories from ancient cultures and incorporate them into Judaism. Uh, he did really what Muhammad did when he went into Mecca and dispelled 290 some gods and said, uh, "Hamal or Hamaj will be our uh, uh, our chief god. We'll rename him Allah." And he created Islam out of whole cloth to do what? To unify his people. Precisely. For uh, a monotheistic system, and I think that's what. That's what Moses did. Uh, If if I could draw an analogy to music and New Orleans, I mean, you've got African music coming in, you've got Western music coming in, and all these other influences coming in, and all of a sudden you've got New Orleans jazz. This is essentially how religions come together, if you will, little bits from from various areas. And, 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 you know, there will be people that listen to this, and they'll say, pah, those guys are just bashing faith. 
um, which is not what we're doing at all. That, no, that's, going no, be, no. that's going to be the response of people who don't want to be open to the fact that the stories might be something other than what we were taught. Um, uh, because uh, you do have a, a, a Nolan's type of music scenario here. What a perfect illustration to what Moses did when he established Judaism. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, and you'll see these remnants of all these things in the Old Testament really have Egyptian roots. Dr. John, the Red Sea, before we run out of time. Is such a, <laughs> was such a thing possible? <laughs> I have to ask these questions. Yes, the Red Sea existed. The Red Sea doesn't, yes, Frank has got a yes. The Red Sea exists, it's, it's a body of water. Um, okay, we'll move on. Let's talk move, about move, the move on swiftly there, because, I, I, no, no. Um, do I believe that the Moses character held aloft his, his, his staff and Aaron spoke the words and the sea split and the people ran across a seabed? No. No, I don't. Um, I believe they crossed across the land where the trade routes were, uh, where there was ample water supply, uh, where there was a, an already established road, an established trade point uh, that's still there to this very day um, that we can trace back thousands of years. And on those trade routes are various strongholds that would suggest garrisons, military garrisons, also trade posts, um, all of these trade routes, which personally I've walked myself and as, long, as well as Scotty, um, I, they're there to this very day. And as you walk across them, you, you're surrounded by archaeological artifacts that can be dated and verify the veracity of what you're walking through, uh, from pottery shards, etc., etc., etc. And so for me... Did they need to split the Red Sea? No. Why, why would they even be anywhere near that vicinity? Because they would have to cross the Eastern Mountain Ridge, uh, which is an impossible feat. There are only two entrances or two exits, depending on how you look at it, um, for them to continue through the mountain, Eastern Mountain Ridge that, that borders, geologically speaking, Egypt. Um, and the water supplies there would have been very, very tough. But, but of course... That, that's if you go with John's theory that the Exodus started in Luxor. Oh, uh, here we go. You okay, go ahead, Scotty. Come in, don't you? Go ahead, Scotty. Uh, uh, you know, John says it started in Luxor. If you try to go to the Red Sea from Luxor, yes, you've got to cross the eastern desert and the eastern desert's mountain ridge. Uh, oh. or, or, as I put forward, um, mm. I believe that it was taking place from the capital away from the capital in Memphis, up in the north, mm. which was... A day's walk from Goshen, where the Israelites would have would have been housed, and if you leave Goshen up in the Delta region from the Memphis area, east of what is now Cairo, north and east of there, and you walk along the Wadi Tumalat, the the trade route up there, which you can even see from Google Earth, you can see the Wadi Tumalat. Uh, you walk along that, you end up at the northern tip of the Bitter Lakes or the Sea of Reeds which was the, the wetland and the big lake off the northern tip of the Red Sea. And uh, the Suez Canal goes through all that right now. But, uh, if, and, it, and it has been uh, found that the, that the term the, the Red Sea in the Old Testament was a mistranslation of the Sea of Reeds. And if this is where they crossed, there is even a, I don't know if this is what it was, somebody would have really had to have their calendar out and know what they were talking about, 
But when they crossed the Red Sea, if it was the Sea of Reeds up to the, just a little bit north of the northern tip of the Red Sea, uh, at the end of the Wadi Tumalat, um, <clears throat> this, there's a phenomenon that takes place there, a natural phenomenon that when the east winds blow at a certain time of the year, oh, Passover, uh, that time of the year, the waters can, they have the effect of blowing back the waters and drying off this very shallow lake where it's revealing, uh, quote-unquote, dry ground, and you could actually walk across the lake. Um, <clears throat> but the waters can also recede very quick or, or, or come back together very quickly. Once the winds uh, recede as well. And remember, even in the biblical text, it doesn't say, and Charlton Heston stretched his rod over the waters and <laughs> the waters stood open. What does it say? It says, Moses spread the rod over the water, and it says, and a strong east wind blew all night and parted the water. And they walked over as if on dry ground. Let me ask Dr. John this real quick. Several years ago, I was in Istanbul, and I was in the Sultan's Palace, and inside the Sultan's Palace, uh, each room has been turned into a museum of sorts, and one of them was a religious museum, and inside that museum, they had the staff of Moses. What do you think, Dr. John? Well, they had a wooden stick. But they claim it was the actual staff of Moses. A wooden stick. Thank you very much. Okay. We're going to <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> I'm sorry, but how, how can you claim it's the staff of Moses when we don't know who Moses was? Precisely. We have. Precisely. We have uh, did, <laughs> yeah, that's what I, that was my point too. When I you yeah, the thorn the thorn tree on uh, uh, what is it Thornberry Hill uh, across from Glastonbury Tor was planted by Joseph yeah. of Arimathea too. You know, yeah. it, the, the the big question is how do we know this? Yeah, I've had sandwiches at the base of that tree. Have you really? <laughs> I, 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 I climbed the tour barefooted with my children and had a nice jam sandwich underneath that tree. Oh, that sounds just terrific, actually. Jam sandwich sounds perfect right about now. Uh, folks, Scotty Roberts, Dr. John Ward, we're having a hoot tonight. There's only a few minutes left, so I'm going to jump to it right away. Dr. John, I have never talked to an official Templar Knight before. Can you tell us how that <laughs> came about? What the heck is that about, my friend? <laughs> Oh, oh, you're digging into my past there. Um, <clears throat> if you can't talk about it because you're in Egypt, and we all know that there's um, no, no, I, stuff I know going I on in Egypt that might not be safe for you, that's fine. He's just trying to decide what he can tell you without having to kill you afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's a very, 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 very long story. Um, one of which... Um, of course, Scotty knows most of it, um, but um, I, I am actually putting it pen to paper, and I will be uh, bringing out a new book, hopefully next year, which will uh, touch upon most of this. Um, but unfortunately, I, there isn't much I can tell you, to be honest with you, Brent, other, other than uh, I am a sworn brother. Um, we do exist, of course. Uh, there are various different shall I say, groups, orders that are out there, modern affiliates today that uh, refer to themselves as, as Templars. Um, you know, you can go online and you can subscribe here and pay your dues and you can receive a nice little badge and a cape and uh, every now and again you meet up in some field somewhere and, and wave some swords around and say, you know, uh, and play. Is it like play. acting or something like that? No, that, that, that's, that, I, I'm saying that's what you can do. I see. Um, okay. That's not what I do. 
uh, or my brothers. Um, is it more like the Masons, what the Masons do? My grandfather uh, was a Mason, great-grandfather. It, it is, it is. It's, it's, of course, it's very similar. Um, most orders are very similar to themselves in their hierarchy and the way in which they're set up, and Freemasonry is, is possibly one of the most easiest ones to use as a a, lot an of, example. Uh, good work, I imagine, uh, for a lot of good yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it, it, it's, it's charity-based, but there is also other things that are associated with it. Um, it's not a secret society. It's not a conspiracy theory. There's nothing there. We, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. <laughs> uh, we, we don't hold the Holy Grail in some secret location. And uh, we certainly um, don't go around worshipping uh, heads, um, even though Scott is probably going to love his head up. <laughs> Sounds more like the Gnostics. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are connotations that's, that's there. Story that they get a private joke connected to a bronze head. So we'll yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's an interesting question, one that I wish I could I could avail you of more information, but I, I can't. For suffice it to say, yes, you, you are talking to a, a living, breathing night snapper. One last question: uh, Are you allowed to talk about anything about what's happening on the ground right now in Egypt? Yes. Before no, 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 no. Feel feel free to ask me. Okay, um, because you know we we get our news uh, interpreted through CNN and all the various news services. What's it? What's the reality like on the ground? And I'll tell you why. I'm very close to the Persian community here in Canada, and the reality on the ground is always different from the reality we've been told. Of course it is. Um, it would be, of course, biased for me to say that there is nothing on the ground here. It's a fantastic place, and, and uh, uh, we're all safe, and there is no <laughs> and and all of that. But one has to be truthful and realistic. Egypt has undergone a revolution. 